This week on the Backtable Podcast. The awareness in the medical community to, to treat this stuff, unfortunately, is not, it's making tremendous strides, but it's not there enough yet, right? Like we've gotten to the point where all the men coming into urology are getting their erectile dysfunction questionnaires, prostate, you know, associated with their prostate cancer screening, right? Like there is, I bet you, if you ask women who with a gynecologic malignancy or a urologic malignancy, like, are they getting sexual function questionnaires when they come into the office? Probably 0%, maybe 1%, right? So be your own advocate because medicine is working to get there, but we're not there yet. So go to your doctor and say, you know, I have pain with sex. I'm interested in this treatment and fine. Doctors don't like people consulting Dr. Google, but, you know, I think there are instances where you have to be your own advocate, and this is one of them. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Aditya Bagrodi as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Ashley Winter, who is a practicing urologist in Portland, Oregon. Ashley's a board-certified urologist who specializes in sexual medicine. She completed her residency at Cornell Medical Center and her fellowship under Dr. Erwin Goldstein, studying both male and female sexual medication. She's an associate editor of Sexual Medicine Reviews and enthusiastically shares her thoughts and perspective on sexual health. Welcome to the show, Ashley. How are you doing today? Hi, it's fantastic uh, to be here. I'm so excited to come on. Absolutely, absolutely. Really looking forward to, to having you. And, you know, honestly, over the course of my career in urology, between interest in urology, residency, fellowship, I feel like sexual health, sexual function and dysfunction is something that's definitely gained a lot of interest and traction, but it's still somewhat in its in its nascency. And let me just ask you, are you know, are you seeing patients that seek out help to help manage their issues, problems that they may be having in the sexual function domain? So that's a really interesting question. Uh, I have specialty training in this, although I work within a managed care organization currently. So it's not, you know, I don't get patients coming to me in the sense of, uh, you know, kind of a tertiary referral center sort of thing. Within our organization, definitely people are directed my way. Uh, and you realize that when you have skills in this area, they're extremely in demand and very few people have expertise in them, right? Like I've become the go-to for all clitoris problems within our organization. And GYN will send people to me because they're not educated on clitoris problems, right? I mean, if you, a basic one would be a clitoral phimosis, right? And sometimes they identify that and they're not taught to deal with phimosis, right? Urologists are. So, so it definitely comes to me. And then on top of that, as I have a practice that's somewhat hybrid sexual dysfunction for men and women, and also some general urology, you see that if you have basic skills in this area, it actually makes your practice in urology general urology, and I think, honestly, all aspects of, of urology much better. And I use some of these skills, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. So we realize that it's, it's, it's all cohesive and you'll be a better urologist and you'll actually have an easier time managing your patients when you have some basic skills in female sexual dysfunction. It's not, you know, this esoteric, crazy stuff. It's just, you know, management of genitals, which is what urologists do. So... Yeah, I think it's a great point. I mean, you know, any one of us treating patients, it's easy not to ask the question, even, you know, 
a, a basic question, like how are things from erectile dysfunction perspective? You know, it, it's one of those things where the patient may be waiting for you to bring it up. And if you don't, it's just going to go and they're going to kind of linger on. So is there a basic sexual history that you inquire about when you see, and, and maybe perhaps for the sake of focus, we'll, we'll hone in on women, but is there just a basic sexual history that you kind of intake on, on, on all female patients that you see? So it's a great question. I, you know, there are a few validated questionnaires. I don't use them in practice. The main one that's comprehensive is one called the FSFI, Female Sexual Function Index. It's really long. You know, I think if you have a specialty practice in FSD, it makes sense to use that. But if you're just incorporating basic FSD management skills into your urology practice, I I don't think you really need to use that. There's also, if somebody's coming in asking about treatment for low sexual desire, there is specifically a questionnaire for that as well. And if you're, we can we can touch upon that later, but if you end up using one of the FDA-approved medications for what's called hypoactive sexual desire, then you can use that screening questionnaire. In terms of basic history taking, it depends what the patient's coming in for. So, you know, if somebody says to me, hey, I have a kidney stone, or, you know, they need a bladder cancer workup, then, then I'm not usually asking a lot of questions about this. Typical places where it does come up, right, is if somebody's sent to me for any sort of lower urinary tract symptoms uh, in females, pelvic pain, recurrent urinary tract infection, because all of those things are intimately related, right? So a classic example is somebody that's sent to me who had been told for many years they have interstitial cystitis, right? And then you ask them, do you have pain with sex? Do you lubricate? Are you able to have an orgasm? How's your desire for sex? So just basic questions. It's not very sophisticated. I think you just have to remember that, you know, your patient is a sexual person and asking, you know, basic questions about sexual activity and and pain with sex are helpful. So, yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, as I was preparing for this uh, podcast and reading up a little bit on female sexual dysfunction, my understanding are, are the exact things that you are the kind of domains, the things that you touched on, which would be desire, aka libido, I believe. Yeah. The ability to get aroused, have an orgasm. Is there any pain? Is that fair? Are there other aspects that that we kind of touch upon? Those are definitely fair. Within subsets, you can get more, you know, specific. So when I have somebody come in for, you know, any sort of pelvic pain or quote unquote, you know, interstitial cystitis, you know, I I also ask about things like, do you have back pain? Do you have any sort of radicular, you know, radiculopathy? You know, do you have, I mean, but this is kind of getting specific down that pathway, you know, is your pain? Obviously, we we like to think about pain associated with bladder filling, but is there pain with, you know, sexual activity? Is there pain with certain positions? Because, you know, as we'll get to later, the pelvis is full of organs that are not the bladder. And uh, oftentimes when patients are coming in with basic urologic complaints like, you know, pain with bladder filling or, you know, urgency frequency, this is actually related to things like your pelvic floor muscles or, you know, lumbar sacral spine disease. And when we think about classic urologic symptoms more broadly, then we're able to actually find better interventions. Uh, that are more specific to the root cause. So it also seems intuitive that sexual dysfunction can absolutely be multifactorial, including 
relationship status, previous history of, I mean, I'm an oncologist, cancer treatment, radiation, surgery to the pelvis, hormonal status, menopausal, postmenopausal, psychological anxiety, depression. And, you know, this isn't like straightforward necessarily. So how, how do you kind of break down your targeted history when you're, again, inquiring about things that may be impacting sexual function, again, whether that's arousal, orgasm, pain, and so forth? Yeah, great question. So I think one of the main issues that holds people back from getting involved with, with female sexual dysfunction is this idea that it's complex and vague, and it's this mountain you cannot conquer, right? And the comparison I'd like to make is, you know, when we think back to to male sexual dysfunction, you know, in probably the 70s, you know, you said, oh, you can't get an erection, you know, you know, you need to go see a psychiatrist. And we thought it was, you know, only mental. And obviously, we know that there's, it's, it's a biopsychosocial phenomenon, right? So obviously, counseling and therapy and understanding interpersonal dynamics is super important. But, you know, it was kind of revolutionary when we said, hey, you know, you can give intracavernosal injections. Hey, you can give this ED pill, you know, and, and that it is something you can add physical interventions on, you know, in a very real way. And I think, you know, with female sexual dysfunction, we're several decades behind. And most, even on a, on a broad cultural level, you say, oh, a woman isn't enjoying sex, have a glass of wine, right? I mean, like, there's still so much of that narrative happening instead of, oh, you know, you're having sexual function issues, not, you know, what, is there any issue with your clitoris? Is there any issue with your vagina? You know, like, we don't think about it that way as a first line. And it's, it's not that it's only physical or only mental, but there are often things that can be intervened on that we were not coming to. So how about like, uh, let, me, let me maybe throw some out there, history of chronic kidney disease, history of cancer, are those ones that uh, you've seen can impact any of the parameters that we've talked about? Sure. So let's say if we're starting with uh, low desire, right? Or not, let's say, yeah, if we're starting with low desire, right? So history you would ask about are, are medications that intervene upon your hormones, right? So Oral contraceptive pills, for example, do lower bioavailable testosterone in, in females 100% of the time. It doesn't mean that it always causes sexual dysfunction, but this is something that's very poorly understood by the general population, right? Uh, oral contraceptive pills don't give you more hormones. It's a low dose of a synthetic hormone that will suppress basically your ovulation. And then that can act, it actually raises sex hormone binding globulin, which lowers testosterone. So that was me digressing. But basically, you know, history of any sort of contraceptive, obviously, uh, you know, history of something like breast cancer and, you know, medications that su suppress hormone levels. How about post-pregnancy? Totally. Huge part. So lactation, you know, is a period of time that leads to suppression um, of hormones and you can have actually pain with sex during, especially during lactation. And treatment with vaginal estrogen is actually really common in that subset. And so, yeah, I mean, these are huge things. So contraceptive, uh, lactation, obviously cancer treatments, you know, vulvar disorders, which is something that I think most urologists, unfortunately, are poorly educated on. But, you know, lichen sclerosis can really have a big impact. Obviously, you know, radiation treatments for 
cervical cancer. Obviously, this is a big one recently in the urologic community talking about cystectomy, you know, and realizing that that, you know, women with post cystectomy still are humans that may want want to be sexually active. How about medications such as antidepressants and um, beta blockers? I mean, these are ones that I'm actually thinking about from the male side that can impact, you know, libido potentially or, or sexual function. Yeah. So SSRIs are, are a notorious one, you know, that, as we know, in, in men can lead to delayed ejaculation or difficulty achieving orgasm. It's certainly the exact same phenomenon in females. Beta blockers, I'm not sure how well that's been studied. Okay. And then, you know, this is obviously going to be a, a sensitive aspect, uh, history of abuse, strained relationships. Is this something that may come up from the patient end once you start having this conversation or, or do you broach it? Um, you know, you're kind of wearing multiple hats, I, I suppose, when you start entering this area of, of sexual function. Yeah, that is definitely a very sensitive area. In my intake questions for the cl- for my clinic, we do have a question, do you have any history of abuse? Uh, I think that can be a good place to, ha- you know, ask that information, at least as an initial screener, because I think, you know, most people are not going to, in their, you know, brief urology encounter, just be able to pop in and say, hey, I've been abused before. You know, a lot of people aren't going to get there. So I think it gives people an opening you know, to initiate for you to kind of prod that line of questioning. Uh, and I do think you could tell pretty frequently when somebody feels like, you know, emotional and psychiatric components to their sexual dysfunction are really at the forefront. I, and most patients will kind of say that to you. And um, I think in those sort of situations, and, and I know achieving a multidisciplinary team is going to be the real key there, right? And, you know, for anybody in the community who's saying, how do I get partners in that space? You know, there is this organization, ASECT. So that's, if you look it up, it's A-A-S-E-C-T.org. And that's the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. So if you want somebody who's, you know, a social worker, who's a therapist, who has real credentialing in doing sexual dysfunction and sex therapy, that's really my go-to for finding people and they have a finder find a provider website so you could even you know look at who's in your community reach out to them see if you can start you know kind of some sort of um you know kind of referral pattern uh, and that's an easy thing to do and i think most of us acknowledge that we're not we're not ever going to be sex therapists but that's okay <laughs> so yeah yeah that, that's uh super helpful i mean i i would imagine a multidisciplinary team could involve psychologists physical therapists, exercise therapists, pelvic floor physical therapists, sex therapists. I'm not sure if that's more of kind of a, a niche thing. Well, th- this is, uh, you know, I think the intake, I mean, obviously it could, it, it could take so many different directions, but maybe jumping into the physical exam, what are, what are the things that you're really kind of dialing in on now? So, you know, kind of starting, I'd say top to bottom, right? So if somebody's coming in with sexual pain, I always do a basic examination of, of their back, right? So you can palpate the SI joint, you know, you can palpate along their their back, you know, in the midline. And then when you do your genital exam, so there's there's a lot of things you're gonna look for. So the first thing, you know, if we start at the at the clitoris, right? I, I do recommend people examine it, right? I think it's like the most ignored organ of the whole external body. <laughs> I mean, I, when I was initially starting as an attending and, and uh, in my current job and we were going over 
billing for for documentation of comprehensive genital exam. You know, the male exam had all the typical things you would think of, right? I mean, penis, uh, uh, you know, scrotum testicles, uh, you know, prostate exam. And uh, on the on the female exam, the word clitoris didn't even come up. Now, I think, you know, billing guidelines have changed since 2017, but I just was flabbergasted at the fact that this this organ, which is, you know, the the embryologic homologue of the penis was like not even on there. Right. It's it's crazy. I mean, it's a small organ. It doesn't mean that it's not highly functional. Right. I mean, so it's right there. How do you examine it? Right. So basic things to remember, right? The clitoris is, the visible part of the clitoris is um, uh, essentially homologous to the glands of the penis. It has a prepuce, right? That's the clitoral hood. And because it has a prepuce, it can get uh, a phimosis, just like a penis. And as a urologist, we can understand that concept. It's pretty basic. So, you know, you put your hand kind of above the clitoris and you try to pull up the hood. And if you can't see it, uh, then the person may have a clitoral phimosis. It's common in conditions like like in sclerosis, but it can be present in people who have no other history. So I've had somebody come in to me and say, like, they thought they had bladder pain or they thought they had interstitial cystitis, you know, and they and then you ask a little more and you find out that they have, uh, you know, pain with arousal and they had a clitoral phimosis. And it actually was like this painful, like they had balanitis of their clitoris. And because the clitoris, you know, kind of extends deeper, you know, into the pelvis, they were experiencing kind of these radiating pain symptoms. And, you know, essentially you can, you know, do a dorsal slit of the clitoral hood and it takes probably two minutes and you can make a dramatic improvement in somebody's life. Right. And and so that's something that if somebody said, go, you know, drink a glass of wine and get a therapist, you want to fix the problem. Right. But, But you can fix that problem as a urologist. So that's the first thing, right? You can basically try to see if, if the clitoris is visible. Typically, you would expect that the typical kind of clitoris gland size to be around the size of a, of a Q-tip, the tip of a Q-tip. If it's, if it's really minuscule, that may indicate kind of a lack of testosterone. And right, we have to remember that physiologic range of testosterone in females is a, about one-tenth of a physiologic range for males. I hate the common messaging that testosterone is the male hormone and estrogen is the female hormone. If you actually look at these molecules like on a one-to-one basis, because they're all sex sex steroids and derived from each other, uh, actually the average female has more testosterone than estrogen. So it's actually an everybody hormone and it's incredibly important for sexual function. So that can be a sign on physical exam of kind of low subphysiologic testosterone level. So so that's kind of starting at the top. Then if you think of the vulva, right, you have the the labia majora, the labia minora. Uh, those can also be fused, um, which would be something that could lead to pain. Commonly example, it would be something like lichen sclerosis or post-radiation. So, you know, you look at that. Then moving internally, you have this this critical space called the vestibule. And this is something that's between the inside of the labia minora and the hymenal ring, okay? And the, ure- the opening of the urethral meatus sits there. And this is, again, going back to kind of homologs, right? This is the homologue of the penile urethra. And interestingly, if you look at people having transgender surgery, female to male, they'll actually take that tissue and tubularize it to make 
the urethra for a for a neophallus. And why am I, you're like, why is she getting on this tangent, right? Because irritation of that area very commonly causes urinary symptoms. Okay. So in your classic postmenopausal patient who thinks they have a UTI all the time, but has negative urine cultures, irritation of that tissue from hormone deficiency can be the cause of those symptoms. It can make you feel like you, it hurts when you pee. Irritation there can make it feel like you have to pee all the time, can make you feel like you have a UTI when you don't have one. So, so you look at that tissue, this, this area of the vestibule, and you look if, if it's, you know, red, irritated, paleness of that tissue, right? It should be like pink and healthy, uh, can indicate hormone deficiency. Also, you know, look at the caliber of it, right? I mean, I think we've all examined somebody who's, you know, 80 years old and, you know, the introitus or the opening of the, of the vaginal area is just, you know, probably like the size of the tip of your finger, right? It's not supposed to be that way at any age, right? I mean, yes, it's part of normal aging, but that's associated with horrible symptoms most of the time. And it's something that can be managed, right, by having these patients use uh, hormones. So, there's that. Obviously, the urethral meatus is something, you know, you look at, again, if it's pale, if there's prolapse, those can be signs, again, of, of you know, hormone deficiency um, or postmenopausal status. And then, you know, in terms of a, a speculum exam, I mean, I don't really look at the cervix or kind of that aspect, uh, you know, too frequently. I think that's more GYN domain. Uh, certainly, you know, you can take a look in there and make sure there's no like severe lesions or anything. And then, you know, when I'm moving into the vagina, the typical thing I'm doing, honestly, is a pelvic floor exam, right? So you basically put your finger in, you turn your hand around and you kind of press you know, downwards and you're going to feel the levators and, you know, you say like, does that hurt? Right. Another trick, right, is if you move your, your finger kind of to the side and have the patient push their knee outward against your hand, you're going to actually feel the obturator and turn it. So, and that if they have real severe pain uh, with that maneuver can actually be an indication that pelvic floor dysfunction is the origin of pain with bladder filling, for example. Right. And that's somebody who's really going to benefit with sexual pain. Um, with urinary tract symptoms by going to a pelvic floor physical therapist. So, you know, I'd say to summarize that, right, you know, do some basic physical exam maneuvers of the back, examine the clitoris, look at the labia, uh, vestibule, super important. You can also palpate that with a Q-tip to see if it's painful and then go ahead with your pelvic floor exam, uh, some basic maneuvers. If you feel not confident with pelvic floor exams, I would encourage any urologist to go to a pelvic floor physical therapy like weekend course. I went to one once and it was probably the highest yield, like three hours of my life. And it was a better physical exam training than I ever had in all of residency. I did that as an attending. It was amazing. So consider doing that. <laughs> yeah, that's, I think it's critical. And, um, you know, I think it's easy to, to gloss over, you know, remember a, an experience and residency where a junior resident was trying to get a catheter in and an obese female and she was trying to intubate the the clitoris and i mean it was a tough tough exam but just familiarizing yourself uh, another time is sounds um incredibly valuable now i know i know some of this is going to be kind of symptom specific but uh routine labs or imaging that you're obtaining on on patients uh with chief complaints of sexual function disorders yeah Definitely depends. There's not too much usually you need. For example, if you're, you know, treating 
hypoactive sexual desire postmenopausal female. You don't really need to do a hormone panel. You know, I, I, I think if they're younger uh, and you're looking to see kind of their hormone status, you can do uh, a testosterone level and, a, and an SHBG just to see what, what it, their level is. Some people have like just dramatically low or almost undetectable testosterone levels, probably due to contraceptive use. And then basic things like checking, you know, TSH, things that you would screen when you're looking for sexual dysfunction in male patients as well, you know, checking an A1C, right? Are they having like lack of sensation or arousal because of, uh, you know, diabetic neuropathy, which which is affects female function, sexual function as, as well as, you know, male. All right. So not, so not, not an extensive panel of FSH and LH and testosterone and prolactin typically kind of as your first line evaluation. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not typically doing that. If there's some concern for, for you know, like if they're having uh, vision, you know, visual effects uh, that you think they might have a elevated prolactin or, uh, you know, if they're on uh, certain, you know, psychiatric medications that can really elevate their prolactin, you know, you can check that. I'm not routinely checking prolactin. I, I think also, you know, if you're going to be very sophisticated with this, you can certainly debate uh, doing more extensive workup. But I think for, you know, the the average urologist, you know, you don't have to kind of go deep down that deep down that pathway. So maybe now let's let's kind of start jumping into management. And and again, if it makes sense, perhaps we could talk about desire, arousal, orgasm, and pain. So, you know, starting out with with desire, low sexual desire. Yeah. Um, we've kind of done our targeted history. We've gotten our exam in. And how do, how do you start chipping away at that? Yeah. So, you know, if you're doing low sexual desire, right? I mean, the class, the, the term most frequently being used for this now is hypoactive sexual desire disorder. You know, the way I think about this is, you know, I want to want it, but I don't want it, right? Obviously, if somebody's not interested in sex and they're not bothered by it, that's not a problem, right? We're not here to tell everybody, hey, you have to be uh, a robust sexual being, you know, I mean, whatever. Like, if you're not bothered, fine. But if you're not interested in sex and you're bothered by it, then then that's kind of what we consider hypoactive sexual desire. And that can be the case in men, too, right? I mean, this is a universally applicable issue. So there are, you know, in terms of intervening on that, I'd say the first thing um, is obviously... Uh, making sure that there's not another reason why, like, are you not interested in sex because it's painful? And then you go down that route, right? You have to address that. And that does, that is the case, right? So you can't say, oh, somebody has a horrific pain with sex and then start giving them all this stuff to make them horny. Like, that's not going to fix it, right? So so you do address all of those. But if, if that has all been addressed and you have somebody who's coming like hypoactive sexual desire disorder, again, there is a screener, screener questionnaire for that. It is pretty simple. You can find it like on the websites for the pharmaceuticals for low sexual desire. And it's called the decreased sexual desire screener. And and anyway, so in terms of the kind of the treatments for that. So if I have somebody who's perimenopausal or postmenopausal, my first line uh, treatment is to is to actually give them testosterone and at a, at a physiologic female dosing. Uh, there's there's a consensus statement if you want to learn more about use of testosterone in, in women, there's a consensus statement from the International Society of Sexual Medicine. You can find, I think it's, I would have to like find the exact article, but you can find it. 
But regardless, you know, there's there's good data to support this. There's even a Cochrane meta-analysis looking at testosterone supplementation in women showing that, you know, in postmenopausal women, there's a benefit for low sexual desire. You really don't need to do lab work to diagnose that. You know, you can presume if somebody's postmenopausal that that they're going to have reduced testosterone production. And the way you dose it, so unfortunately in the United States, there's no FDA-approved testosterone formulations specifically for physiologic cisgender female dosing, which is really pathetic. Uh, like, but, you know, I, I think there's been attempts to make it happen and they haven't been approved by the FDA. Uh, so, so the easiest way to do it is to take uh, like a testosterone gel that you would prescribe for a guy. Uh, and because you're thinking about doing this at like one tenth of dosing, you just have them use that over the course of 10 days. Now, when it, you have like a packet that can be kind of messy, there are actually, you know, 1% testosterone gels that come in like once a day tubes. And that's the easiest one. And then they can, you know, just just use that on the back of the calf over the course of 10 days. If they fill, use the tube up sooner than that, then, you know, they just don't use any more for a few days um, and it's fine. So it's actually super simple. Uh, a lot of insurances or probably almost all insurances won't cover this, which is really sad. Thankfully, because it's like they only have to buy a one month supply and that basically takes Covers them for takes them through a year. Yeah, exactly. And and generic testosterone aren't super expensive. So usually you just say, don't worry about getting, you know, there's no prior authorization that's going to get this. Don't waste your time. Just buy it and you'll get a whole years out of it. So that's super easy. And do you have to follow labs like uh, hemoglobin hematocrit or is that at those levels not even going to make an impact? It's not going to make an impact. That's the amazing thing about so many of these treatments. They're so easy. Like, they're easier than doing it with, with males. I mean, people are not at those levels of T supplementation. Nobody's going to get polycythemic. Okay. Like, yeah. I mean, I will say if, if there's any concern that somebody has virilizing symptoms, then you can check a T level. I had a woman come to me because she um, was having, having actually bladder pain and I did an exam on her and she had massive uh, clitoromegaly and it turns out she had been going to a naturopath which is who was overdosing her on testosterone and she had a testosterone level of like 800 right and this is not somebody who's on like gender affirming hormone therapy like this was somebody who just went for low libido and they had been <laughs> so so you know Yikes. if they have any andro virilizing symptoms then then just check a t level for some reason they might have been using it wrong but you don't have to follow it so and then in terms of non-hormonal approaches to to HSDD. So there's two FDA-approved drugs. Um, one is called flibanserin. The other is called bremelanotide. You know, the nice thing is because these are FDA-approved, there's tons of resources from those websites. So you can like, you know, because they want you to prescribe it, obviously. So there's tons of educational material. Flibanserin uh, is a once-a-day pill that you, that you take every day. It's a you know, selective serotonin agonist antagonist. Um, it works in the brain, non-hormonal. It's technically FDA approved for premenopausal females. Uh, certainly, I've seen people give it postmenopausally, although you want to address hormones first. And I've also seen people use it in in men, actually with excellent results uh, because it's non-hormonal. There are, I mean, it's it's a lot of people love it. Uh, you know, increased desire, increased improvement with orgasm, arousal, like lubrication, all these amazing things. Initially, a lot of people were concerned about it because they had a black box warning that you couldn't use alcohol uh, and flibanserin at the same time. That has been removed. 
And it was based off these crappy studies where basically they took some test subjects and gave them like, you know, full bansarin. And then on an empty stomach first thing in the morning, they had them drink like a bunch of alcohol and they got dizzy. You know, I mean, it's just, you know, it was just like ridiculous. I mean, it was just like sometimes, you know, safety trials don't correlate with with real world. Real stuff. life. Yeah. So don't, you know, don't be scared of that. There actually are side effects of, you know, kind of improved sleep quality and the average uh, patient taking it does lose a little bit of a weight. And that was like, you know, so so there are some other aspects of it that people find beneficial. Uh, and it's really useful in people, let's say, who have sexual dysfunction associated being on some sort of psychiatric medication that they can't stop. Right. So let's say somebody has severe depression, they're on an SSRI and they really, you know, and you'd love to say, oh, stop that. and You'll be able to orgasm again. But maybe if that person stops their high dose of SSRI, they have severe depression or they're suicidal. Right. Like you can't stop that. But this is an amazing drug for somebody with those side effects. I wish I could give it to, to men, too. And you can, obviously, because as providers, we can use things off label. The problem is almost no insurance is covered and it's a new drug, so it's expensive. But I'm a huge fan of that. And then the other one, brine melanotide, is basically that's the on-demand medication. So it's a melanocortin receptor agonist. Um, and, and it's actually an auto injector. And you take that about an hour before sex and you, and you inject. So that's like, if you don't want a, a continuous dosing thing and you want to do it on demand. Uh, and I think, you know, if, if a patient comes to you and you've diagnosed them with HSDD, which you can do easily through that, that screener questionnaire, that's like four questions. You know, you have those two options and you say, hey, are you interested in something that's, uh, you know, kind of continuous dosing or are you interested in something on demand? And those are the two main options. So, uh, you know, I encourage people if they're if they're interested in to start prescribing these things, uh, you know, it can make a huge difference in your patient's life. And it's not that hard. Yeah. I, th I mean, full disclosure, honestly, prior to preparing for this podcast, I'd never even heard of those medications. And, um, you know, it is what it is. It's a little bit embarrassing as like a practicing urologist. But um, the fact that there are options, um, both hormonal and non-hormonal, that have you know shown very strong efficacy is is incredible. And um, do you have a ballpark for what the uh, incidence of hyposexual desire disorder is? Because I I have to imagine that this is one of those things that's like thirty percent of women you know are affected by HSDD. I think it's massive. And again, you know, there are, it's so many layers, right? I mean, yes, it could be a relationship issue. It could be, you know, there can be a hormonal component. There can be stress. But that said, there are providers who are like, well, you can't just throw this drug at people and not address the root cause, right? Right, right. My argument would be you need to do both. Right. I mean, that's like saying nobody who has depression should be on antidepressants. They should all go to therapy until they're not sad. Anymore, right. I mean, like we've realized that's not a fair. It's not it's not it's, sure, it's, it's sure. a false choice. Right. So. So, yes, that person, if they have relationship problems, needs to address it, blah, blah, blah. If they need to go to therapy, they need to go to it. But but if there are safe, FDA approved, effective options, do it. Right. And And on top of that, like. There are so many layers where it factors into each other, like these things roll into each other, right? Like I'm not interested in sex. And because of that, my relationship is stressed, which makes me less interested in sex. But if I took this like 
pill. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm so interested in sex now. And, you know, me and my partner are suddenly having more sex and then we're happier. And, that, you know, that could address one of the root causes. So I think, you know, we just have to get over the idea, again, that like sexuality is siloed from from other forms of healthcare, um, and embrace this sort of thing the way we've embraced erectile dysfunction. Absolutely. The other thing that I hate with this is that they're commonly called like female Viagra, which is just complete garbage. Like female Viagra would be Viagra, right? I mean, the clitoris is a homologue of the penis. If somebody wants to improve their clitoral rigidity, they could take Viagra and, you know, and it will have the same effect on the corpora cavernosum of the clitoris. I mean, that's it. And honestly, also by vasodilating, uh, you can actually improve lubrication by taking Viagra, um, like vaginal lubrication. So so that's the female Viagra is just Viagra. <laughs> These medications, by, you know, blurimelanotide and flibanserin are, you know, centrally acting non-hormonal treatments. So it's just, a, it's, it's, you know, totally different. So um, I think that's, I mean, sounds to me fairly comprehensive for hypoactive sexual desire disorder. What about for issues and problems with arousal and ability to have an orgasm? Okay. So the first thing I would say is examine the clitoris, right? Uh, just because that is something that's super easy to, to intervene on if they do have a clitoral phimosis. So that's number one. I'd say a second thing, obviously, is it's education, right? I mean, it's horrible for me to say this, but the number of women who come to me and say, I can't orgasm, I am upset about this. And then it turns out that they still thought that they should be able to orgasm from penetration is insane, right? Like, I've had women who are like 50 years old say, I've never been able to orgasm. I'm like, do you, do you have you ever bought a vibrator? And they're like, no, no, <laughs> that's crazy. I mean, we all th know that it's normal for women to orgasm through clitoral stimulation. And very commonly, normal for women to not be able to orgasm from penetration. But a lot of people don't know that. So actually just ask people like what their expectation is. And it will turn out maybe that nobody's ever stimulated their clitoris. And if they, you know, try that, then they're able to orgasm, right? And also tell them it's normal if they don't orgasm from penetration. So I think that is a basic thing that we often forget to ask. Uh, we assume people know. So there's that aspect of things. Obviously, screening for diabetes, education around diabetes is so critical, right? I mean, we've learned with male patients explaining to them that, you know, their diabetes can lead to erectile dysfunction and orgasmia and ejaculation. Like, that's huge. But it does all the same thing in, in females. And, you know, that can be a gateway to obviously glycemic control. Uh, so educating about that, you know, issues of, of, let's say, lubrication, again, a huge hormonal component. So if you have perimenopausal, postmenopausal females, no matter how horny they are, if there's if you don't have the correct estrogen supply to the tissue of the of the vagina and the vestibule, then they're not going to be able to become lubricated. Uh, that's just like basic. And uh, interestingly, uh, <laughs> if you go back to the correlation, I'm getting esoteric here between the vestibule, right, which is the homologue of the male penile urethra, the lubrication that comes from that tissue, right, is the female equivalent of pre-cum. So it's like the, the equivalent of the, there's these minor vestibular glands and they're the equivalent of like the glands of Littre or however you're supposed to say that, you know, that you see when you're cystoing a guy and you see those little dots along like the 12 o'clock position as you go through the penile urethra. 
And those are like nature's initial lubrication front uh, in both men and women. And so, you know, doing topical therapies, which I know we'll get into, can really address that. And on top of that, if you have somebody who's breastfeeding or on hormonal contraceptive, uh, then those tissues also could be really under estrogenized and and can also benefit from local treatment. And you can definitely give premenopausal females, for example, uh, you know, topical estrogen, whether they're breastfeeding, whether they're on, you know, or or contraceptive pills and have, you know, signs of low hormones in that tissue. So kind of, you know, um, anorgasmia, let's see, we're addressing the hormone aspects. Uh, and then, you know, another thing, like I say, that I is so, so, so vastly underappreciated with all sexual dysfunction, male and female, is um, the connection between, like, underappreciated the, the connection with nerve issues, right? So I, a lot of people obviously like to talk about the punet, pudendal nerve, you know, pudendal nerves uh, that run through your pelvis, that you have, you have pelvic floor dysfunction, tight muscles that that can, you know, kind of cause pain with sex, can cause sexual dysfunction. Uh, but on top of that, lumbar sacral spine disease is so dramatically overlooked here, right? So, I mean, obviously we know like the, the spinal cord ends around, I think, the um, like L2 level and then your sacral spinal nerve roots pass through your whole like basically like lumbar sacral spine area and then they come out um and innervate obviously like our penis and clitoris and other pelvic organs and if you have issues with let's say you know your l4 l5 disc you know that can cause aberrant sensation in you know even your sacral organs because you're having you know the nerve roots to that area pass pass through i know i'm getting very specific no, but I think it goes back to the to the physical exam, doing a good, you know, back exam, maybe a focused neurological exam for for sensation, you know, not things that we would think about necessarily every time, but they're still squarely in our wheelhouse. Yeah. And you know, whether male or female, I have people come in with like painful female sexual pain, uh conversely penile pain, and it turns out that they also every time they have their penile pain, they're having like radiating pain down in their foot. And it's like they, that person needs to go to the spine clinic. Like you're not going to fix that problem. And we just like somebody was giving them, you know, Emla cream for their penis. So it's like that's not going to help them. Like they're, then they're not going to feel their penis. Like they don't want that. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and we sure. or we try to look for covert Peyronie's like, come on. Like that's like, no, it's just, you know, if somebody had radiating pain in their hand, you'd be like, oh, like look into your your neck. Right. And like you just think sure. of the penis and the clitoris and our genitals always like float independently from the rest of our body and, and they don't. So. So tell talk a little bit more about um, vaginal estrogen, if you don't mind, you know, kind of where you see that kind of fitting in with respect to, you know, kind of the full spectrum of arousal, orgasm, uh, pain and desire. I, I think you've suggested that it's a generally underutilized, super straightforward intervention for a urologist. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So this is something also, I and I, I love my residency program. I think they gave me great education, but I don't think the word, you know, vaginal estrogen came up once in six years. And in my current practice, it's hands down one of the most utilized interventions. It's probably vaginal estrogen and, and Cialis are like the two main things I prescribe. <laughs> so as a urologist, it, this is totally our lane. If you look at, you know, the newest AUA guidelines on management of recurrent urinary tract infection, they recommend giving all 
perimenopausal and postmenopausal women with recurrent UTI, vaginal estrogen, you know, providing there's no contraindication, which there's very few. And the data supporting this is, is excellent, right? So there's even, if you look back, there's a publication in the New England Journal in the 90s showing that if you give low-dose estrogen to, to women who are postmenopausal, perimenopausal, that what it does is it raises the vaginal pH and allows, you know, the lactobacillus, which is the normal flora in the vagina, to repopulate and that it lowers the rate of urinary tract infections. Okay. So uh, this is something we've known for decades and it has not been ubiquitously employed, right? I mean, the vast majority of postmenopausal women coming in with recurring UTIs have not been offered this. I mean, it's crazy. Like, it's absolutely crazy. I mean, that's excellent evidence. So, and, and on top of the risk of urinary tract infections, right, there's something called GSM, which is genitourinary syndrome of menopause. And the symptoms of that, in addition to recurrent UTI, are recurrent UTI-like symptoms when there's no infection, right? Burning, urinary frequency, urinary urgency, uh, pain with sexual activity, you know, poor lubrication. So all these things that oftentimes are miscategorized as overactive bladder or, you know, infections when they don't have it or interstitial cystitis. And it's not saying that those conditions don't exist, but this is the number one first-line therapy for any of those symptoms in any woman who is peri- or postmenopausal, 100%. Because the tissue is not healthy until you get them on that. And until you get them on that, all of your oxybutynin prescriptions are a poor second. You know what I mean? Like you're not, you have to start with the basic, which is, which is reestablishing the health of that tissue. So in term, I mean, that, how many patients is that, right? It's a ton. And I say this as a urologist, that it's important for all of us, because let's say you're an endourologist and you have any single patient who's a peri- or postmenopausal female, well, if they keep getting a urinary infections, it's going to mess with the ureteroscopy you have to do or the PCNL you have to do, right? So this is important for all of us. It's not like a niche thing, right? If you have, you know, uh, a urologic oncologist, if you have a, you know, bladder cancer patient and you're doing your surveillance system and they keep getting UTIs, it's going to mess with the diagnostic value of your surveillance cystoscopy, right? Because they have inflammation and they have a positive culture. If you're trying to give somebody BCG, you know, it's just, it's so critical. And this can radically reduce the need for antibiotics, antibiotic stewardship. So it improves all of our lives. So I'm ranting on, but I just, it's so basic. It's part of all of our practice. It improves the quality of your patients' lives. And these are my happiest patients. I mean, this is, I'll also talk about your Prescani scores. I mean, I have like people, I've prescribed them vaginal estrogen after they've been getting rounds of antibiotics for decades and they come in and they like hug me you know, and, and, and they know it never come back to urology because all their problems were fixed. I mean, it's incredible. So don't do, don't feel like you're doing a service to just to your patients. You're doing a service to yourself. So in terms of how to prescribe this stuff, do you, sorry, before I go further, do you have any questions about that? No, I mean, my, my head was kind of spinning with ideas, you know, exactly in this space. I mean, it's pretty appealing to think about like a randomized controlled trial for patients receiving BCG who, you know, get infections, get, frequency, urgency, pelvic pain, dysuria, and, you know, how simple would it be to do a randomized trial of, you know, female patients, half of them getting uh, vaginal estrogen and the other half of them not. Uh, certainly something that I think I could immediately take away into my practice. Yeah. But yeah, my next question would be, 
how do you recommend prescribing it? So I think we're spot yeah. on. So this is also so, so easy. So you don't require, right, if they're peri or postmenopausal, there's nothing you have to do to diagnose this. Even if you did a video appointment with a patient, you ask them, hey, are you postmenopausal or are you perimenopausal? That's it. You don't even have to do a physical exam. You know they have that condition, right? That's a fact. Any woman who is perimenopausal, postmenopausal, and has any urinary tract symptoms whatsoever, they qualify. I mean, that's it. It's basic. There's almost nothing you have to do. <laughs> you know, so it's easy. You've diagnosed it. In terms of prescribing it, so what you want to pick is some of the low-dose formulations. And, and we're talking about the vaginal formulations, right? So there's creams like estradiol, estrace is a common one. The way they dose it is that they use uh, what we say is um, like one gram. And you'll see on the prescribing information for these things, but you use one gram every day for, for two weeks. And, um, and then I tell them to use three times a week for the rest of their life. Uh, and that's it. And you don't have to monitor anything. That's it. <laughs> uh, and I tell people like, they're like, oh, well, if my symptoms resolve, do I stop it? And I say, you never talk to your dentist and say, when can I stop brushing my teeth? I don't have any cavities, right? Like the menopause doesn't reverse itself. So you just put them on it and they stay on it forever. And they're like your happiest patients. Other formulations, if they don't like the, the cream and they think it's messy, there's a vaginal insert. It's called Uvafem. You do it the same way every day for two weeks and then like, you know, two times a week forever. Uh, there's one called E-string, which is a like a little vaginal ring that gets popped in and, and switched out every few months. Just look up, you know, vaginal estrogen products. In terms of some really important things to know for prescribed. So A, all of those products come with this scary black box insert warning talking about increased risk of, you know, blood clots, breast cancer, uterine cancer, right? Now, the really important thing to know as a provider, is that all of those warnings are based off of the WHI study, right? Women's Health Initiative. And that was this critical study, right? I think it came out in the early 2000s or 90s that really took, made everybody turn away from hormone replacement therapy, right? And the important thing to know is that those outcomes, that black box warning is derived from women taking much higher doses of systemic estrogen, right? So pills, patches, not the topical formulations, which are not in the long run shown to raise blood estrogen levels. They're not. Okay. So, and, and if you look at the, the American College of Obstetrics Gynecology has issued consensus statements, the National Menopause or Foundation asking the FDA to take those black box warnings off of the low dose vaginal preparations and they won't, they haven't done it. But there's no, there's no good reason. It shouldn't be there. And the reason I say this is because those black box warnings make a lot of providers hesitant to prescribe it because they're like, oh, medical legally, I don't want to be involved in this. Or, oh, this is dangerous. I need to monitor something. Or your patients won't take it because they fill the prescription and they see that and they don't want to do it. So I tell everybody, ignore that. You can ignore it. You have back there. You could find resources online showing the consensus statements that it's garbage and bogus. And when you prescribe these things, just make a pre-made educational sheet for your patients because you don't have time to go on and on about all this. But give it to your patients because they're going to be more compliant with that. And on top of that, for your own knowledge, there may be a transient rise in blood estrogen levels when they initially start this therapy uh, as the vaginal mucosa kind of reestablishes itself. But 
in the long run, it does not raise blood estrogen levels. And because of that, there is no, like in somebody with a history of breast cancer or uterine cancer who's NED, I have no concern whatsoever about giving these products. If they're for actively being treated, let's say with a, you know, anti-estrogen, then I would reach out to their, you know, oncologist. But that's almost the only reason to do that. And everybody else could just prescribe it with with abandon, <laughs> with abandon. Now, there are certain things, right? They may get, like I said, some some spotting initially because they have some systemic absorption initially. And they may feel irritated in the beginning as the tissue adapts. Uh, and you could just tell them that's normal and that it takes a few months for it to resolve. But I will tell you, I mean, this has made my practice so much easier. You know, all these patients that come to me, postmenopausal, lower urinary tract symptoms, overactive bladder, recurring UTIs, and I put them on this stuff and they're like the happiest, happiest people. And, uh, you know, so so that's that's really it. <laughs> yeah, and I think just kind of familiarizing ourselves with it, hearing it again um, from somebody that, you know, does this routinely is incredibly valuable. And it sounds like it, you know, absolutely traverses both lower urinary tract symptoms, sexual function disorder, pelvic floor disorder. And, you know, I, I kind of jokingly tell urology residency applicants that, um, you know, if you can help people pee and have sex and not have pain, in addition to eating and sleeping, to be involved in that, you're, you're kind of halfway there. Totally. So it sounds like this, this is a, you know, really, really nice way that we can intervene and globally affect um, sexual health in, in women. And I, I'm very excited to, you know, kind of start implementing this in a big way. I think I've probably um, prescribed vaginal estrogen like twice in like a kidney cancer patient that also had urinary symptoms. And I literally, I prescribe it and I have them see one of my colleagues um, in, in more of the kind of female sexual medicine function. But, uh, and, and I imagine that this also has benefit in pain with sex. 100%. Um, so in addition to the vaginal estrogen, can you talk a little bit about the, uh, you know, things things that you advise for patients that are having pain with sex. You mentioned lubricants earlier, but some of the 101 things that are important for that. Obviously, you know, it's important to break it down, right? Are they having pain like with arousal? Because if they have pain with arousal, then it's potentially something like a, an issue with their clitoris, right? Like as the clitoris gets engorged, if they have clitoral phimosis, that could cause pain with arousal. If you're talking about pain with penetration, then a basic question would be, you know, do you have a pain initially, like initially on entry, or do you have a kind of a deeper pain? And and that can kind of speak to potentially two different issues. Uh, although oftentimes they're they're you know committed uh, that you'll have two issues at once. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, irritation of that tissue, the vestibule you know, which surrounds the the opening to the vagina and where the urethra is. Um, if somebody has an issue with that, so there's an issue called like hormone-mediated vestibulodynia, then that can be, again, something related to hormone issues. And so there are people, again, let's say, who have that during lactation and you put them on a vaginal, on a vaginal estrogen and that will treat the irritation of that vestibule tissue at the opening. Again, on physical exam, if you take a Q-tip and put it in that area and they have pain, then then it's something that can be addressed. So, you know, that's a basic one. And then, uh, you know, when if it's deeper pain or even both, you know, always checking the pelvic floor is really key. And 
any of these patients I'm sending to pelvic floor physical therapy. I mean, um, you know, pelvic pain, pain with intercourse is so traumatic on the, you know, on the body. And even if it starts with something else, let's say vestibulodynia, they can develop a secondary pelvic floor spasm from that. So, you know, there are obviously um, other treatments that can be done for pelvic floor. Some people do like you know, trigger point Botox injections, et cetera. Um, but, but really, you know, the first thing always is send them to pelvic floor physical therapy. Um, you know, find the pelvic floor physical therapist in your community. Uh, you don't have to be a specialist in pelvic pain to, to refer to them. These, again, are my happiest patients. I mean, I had a patient come back to me the other day. And they're like, my favorite doctor is you and my physical therapist. You know, like, you know, and, and there's a value also to you in the sense that they're going to spend hours with this pelvic floor physical therapist and that pelvic floor physical therapist is going to get an incredible physical exam, is going to get incredible history. And so if you have a complex patient with with pelvic pain, they're doing a lot of the work for you. I mean, it's like making your life easier, right? Like it's amazing. Like send them. (laughs) So, so, you know, I think those are the, the basic things I would state, you know, low threshold to, to assess hormone deficiency to, to prescribe vaginal estrogen if needed and to send to physical, you know, public floor physical therapy and not assume somebody has something like interstitial cystitis. Uh, again, I'm, I'm sounding like I'm bashing that. Obviously, that's a whole other subset. But, you know, you want to address other things as well that could be, uh, you know, the root cause of their symptoms. So, no, I think, I mean, you know, it's easy to be dismissive. It's certainly super easy to never bring it up. And, you know, the kind of takeaways from me and, you know, admittedly, it's going to take a while to kind of incorporate or if you don't ask the questions, you're never going to know. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's going to be, uh, I think, a lot that comes along with that. Um, I mean, just kind of off the top of my head, you know, is it appropriate to have a chaperone in the room? Um, is this best done with the patient only or ideally with the patient's partner? You know, I think there's there's so much more to this that I've still got to kind of synthesize in my own brain, but you've got to ask the questions. Yeah. Don't be dismissive. It's massive from a quality of life perspective, and you may have an opportunity to really um, help patients out both in in kind of GU and sexual function with relatively safe uh, interventions. Can I also, as a comment on kind of from the, you know, oncology side or general neurology side and research questions, you know, Genitourinary syndrome of menopause, I am very confident, is an extremely high factor in inappropriate, like or non non oncologic based, uh, like microhematuria in in this population, right? Because they have, you know, kind of this friable tissue at their urethra, and they all come in and they get their imaging and they get their cysto and it's all negative and i put them on the and every single one of them needs to be a vaginal estrogen i put them on and they're you know and their microhematuria resolves and in in a great number of cases and i think this kind of you know idiopathic microscopic hematuria or even even you know on occasion you know mild gross hematuria in this population is just like undiagnosed uh gsm and like we're just not like we could stop all these inappropriate evaluations uh with this intervention and like yeah and 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 that's a great way that these people are coming into urology and we can intervene on it so 
You know, for me, Ashley, this has been incredibly useful of any podcast. I think I've just sat back and enjoyed learning and listening. Yeah. And and, I, and there's so many other things that, that have kind of popped in my head, you know, post-radiation therapy, gynecologic surgery, sex with um, partners that have uh, multi-component penile prosthesis, mm. spinal cord patients, paraplegics, quadriplegics, and, you know, maybe just to, to hold the uh, interest of our listenership we can we can save that for another totally. day but i did want to you know see if you had any kind of last minute advice for maybe not just urologists but for patients as well as it pertains to female sexual dysfunction yeah i, I mean for patients i would say be your advocate uh the awareness in the medical community to to treat this stuff unfortunately is not it's making tremendous strides, but it's not there enough yet, right? Like we've gotten to the point where all the men coming into urology are getting their erectile dysfunction questionnaires, prostate, you know, associated with their prostate cancer screening, right? Like there is, I bet you, if you ask women who with a gynecologic malignancy or a urologic malignancy, like are they getting sexual function questionnaires when they come into the office? Probably 0%, maybe 1%, right? So be your own advocate because medicine is working to get there, but we're not there yet. So go to your doctor and say, you know, I have pain with sex. I'm interested in this treatment. And fine, doctors don't like people consulting Dr. Google. But, you know, I think there are instances where you have to be your own advocate. And this is one of them. The other thing I would say, which I didn't really touch upon, is there are so many resources. So ISHWISH, the International Society for Women's Sexual Health, uh, is a great organization for, uh, it's a kind of multidisciplinary organization, but there's plenty of urologists there. They have excellent, excellent courses uh, like in person. And also they have tons of online material. Of course, you can become a member of uh, ISSM or SMSNA, which are International Society for Sexual Medicine and the Sexual Medicine Society of North America. But I will say ISHWISH is kind of the go-to if you want to do female sexual health education. They have tons of CME resources. So, so to patients be your own advocate, to physicians, check out additional resources. You know, from a treatment standpoint, you know, I think like we're saying, just examining the clitoris, examining the the urethral meatus, the opening to the the vagina called the vestibule. Those are urologic organs. <laughs> think about them as the analogous to what they are in the dudes, and then you'll feel a lot more comfortable. It's not crazy. Uh, it's just rearranged. And and yeah, and vaginal estrogen all day, every day. Your life will be so much better no matter what sort of doctor you are. I mean, I will tell you, this is crazy. I had a tweet about this that went like, you know, pretty, pretty big, uh, you know, like mildly viral, a few thousand, you know, inter like likes and retweets. And we actually got one of the emergency medicine publications to do a an article about vaginal estrogen and it's coming out next month with the idea that like if they're seeing you know people women coming in with pyelonephritis all the time in the emergency room who are postmenopausal that they can start this prescription too because it requires no monitoring and they could potentially reduce ER visits and health, overall healthcare costs. So uh, this is something that's like, you know, just vaginal estrogen all day, every day. It's great for all urologists. It's great for other doctors, uh, emergency, primary care, whatever. So uh, those are my takeaways. That's great, Ashley. Well, you know, thanks again. It's been incredibly educational for me, and I certainly hope, hope so for our relationship. And thanks for taking out the time. There, there seems to be, you know, like we've covered a lot, but it's the tip of the iceberg. And, you know, 
appreciate everything you're doing to really advocate for both uh, women's and men's sexual health. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. 